0: You must kiss the a kiss you just
1: a kiss
2: A cry for hair Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another tale in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. As you know, if you've been listening to this series from the beginning, the episodes thus far have all been directly inspired by suggestions made by our listeners on our forum, which you can find at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. This episode is also inspired by suggestions made on our forum, although in a more roundabout way. Our listener, Dan Saraceni, who we heard from in a previous episode, suggested that we also do an episode on Jackie Coogan, the child actor whose earnings were squandered by his parents, leading to the establishment of protections for child performers. Inspired by that entry, listener Stan Sweda asked us to look into the, quote, shameful treatment of child actors in Hollywood from Coogan to the two Corys. This does seem like fertile territory. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginnings of the forum, you'll see a post that I made a long, long time ago brainstorming a series about child actors, which would include the stories of people like Sal Mineo and Tuesday Weld. I'll get around to that series eventually, and it'll definitely include Coogan's story, which could fit into this series of MGM stories because he did work at MGM for a few years. But the most fascinating parts of his life and career, to me, happened before and after his employment by Louis B. Mayer. And after Coogan's time on the MGM lot came to an end, that's when the really interesting stuff about child stars and MGM started to begin. The standardized discovery and development of young performers became a key part of the transition the studio made during the late 1930s. From the late 1930s through the 1940s, MGM was mecca for child stars. They signed and developed more young people than any other studio, and they gave their under-18 performers more to do. The previous stories we've told during this series concerned performers who knew MGM as a place that, for better or for worse, was pulled taut between two poles of power, the cerebral, sophisticated perfectionist Irving Thalberg, and the sensitive, populist pragmatist Louis B. Mayer. But in 1932, the same year that a schoolhouse was built on MGM's lot, Thalberg suffered the heart attack that would put him out of commission for six months and instigate a restructuring of the power grid underlying the studio. After Thalberg returned to work in mid-1933, He had free reign over his own productions and virtually no power over the general vision or direction of the studio at large. The stars at the center of this story came into the MGM family after Thalberg had been sidelined, and they came into their own as stars after Thalberg's death. With Thalberg gone, the pressure to maintain and increase MGM's unprecedented success fell squarely on the shoulders of Louis B. Mayer. As he put it,
3: Every son of a bitch in Hollywood is waiting for me to fall on my ass.
2: With that responsibility came the chance to fully dictate, without opposition, exactly what kind of studio MGM was going to be. The prestige productions that Thalberg had favored were out, as were vanity productions whose primary value was to feed the ego of a contract star. The centerpiece hits of the new Thalberg-free MGM the epitome of Mayer's vision for the future of the studio, were the movies made in the late 1930s and early 1940s by Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, best friends and on-screen partners who met as preteens at MGM's Backlot Schoolhouse. As a money-minting pair of kids who actually longed for the paternal attentions of Mayer and his studio, Mickey and Judy were the studio's idea of the ideal stars. And then they began to grow up. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases, from M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us, won't you? For the stories of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, MGM's children. Today's story was partially inspired by the memoirs of a woman named Mary E. McDonald, who graduated from UCLA and went straight to the Philippines on a government program that paid American teachers to work in other countries. After four years there, the fluent French speaker planned to move on to Europe, but her family was really struggling to make ends meet in Los Angeles during the Depression, so Mary came home and looked for work. L.A. Unified School Districts were cutting jobs, and they weren't hiring. But MGM contacted the school board looking for a French teacher to work with a young actress named Jean Parker, who was about to be loaned out to RKO to star alongside Katharine Hepburn in Little Women. McDonald was soon hired by MGM at $50 a week. Louis B. Mayer was so impressed with her work that in 1935, he created a position for her as the teacher-in-residence, presiding over a two-room schoolhouse on the lot. Eventually, MGM was signing so many new child performers that McDonald had to demand more space in which to house them. Louis B. Mayer had told her that he wanted these children taught strictly according to the rules, and the state had a rule about how much fresh air, measured in cubic feet needed to be allocated to each student. When McDonald told the mayor administration that she couldn't possibly take another pupil until she got more fresh air, they gave her an entire bungalow. MGM had had a schoolhouse on the lot since 1932, but the studio's history with child performers went back further. Coogan, who had been discovered by Charlie Chaplin and cast opposite the little tramp in The Kid when he was only seven, had been a top star at MGM in the late 1920s, until an awkward adolescence forced him to put his career on hold, puberty being the rare act of nature that Louis B. Mayer couldn't control. Child stars appealed to Mayer for a number of reasons. Mayer liked to think of himself as the patriarch of a massive, happy family, a picture completed by the idea, if not the reality, of a handful of lovable youngsters running around. He also believed that you could make the most money by reaching the most people. He wanted entire families to be able to share the experience of going to the movies, and so he sought to depict multi-generational family experiences. And you needed kids for that. Child actors needed more management and more resources to develop, but that just meant that they were more dependent rather than independent. At least, in theory. Two of the biggest stars who ever passed through Mary McDonald's schoolhouse would test that theory. In Mary McDonald's first year as MGM schoolmistress, she had two preteen recent MGM signees in her class. By the time he was offered a contract by MGM in 1934, 13-year-old Mickey Rooney was a screen veteran. Born into a Brooklyn vaudeville family as Joe Yule Jr., at age 7, the future Rooney was cast in a series of two real shorts based on the comic strip Mickey McGuire, about a cigar-smoking street kid. Joe made 70 Mickey McGuire movies, first Silence and then Talkies. By the early 1930s, he was so identified with his character that he was going by the name Mickey McGuire off-screen, too. When his mom announced her intention to take him on a vaudeville tour as Mickey McGuire, the creators of the McGuire comic strip threatened legal action, and Joe Yule Jr. had to pick a new name for himself. He kept the Mickey. Rooney seems to have been an adaptation of Looney, as in Looney Tunes, but one tick off to avoid the wrath of more lawyers. When the McGuire series ended in 1932, Rooney made several movies at MGM as a freelancer. He would later claim that Frank Orsati, the studio's in-house bootlegger, quote, changed his life. As Rooney later remembered it.
0: I was impressed when Orsati told me, you got talent, kid, real talent. And I was doubly impressed when he started getting me real parts at MGM. He had some close ties to Louis B. Mayer, but it wasn't until later that I learned what they were. But he had the ties, and he got me the parts. That was enough.
2: That Rooney would give this credit to someone like Orsatti says something about Rooney, who even as a huge star who represented the epitome of all-American boyhood, would keep a hand in the world of gamblers and gangsters. But it was David O. Selznick, Louis B. Mayer's son-in-law, who got Rooney signed to a full contract by casting him as a young Clark Gable in a film called Manhattan Melodrama, a massive hit which launched Myrna Loy and William Powell as a screen pairing, and convinced Mayer that Rooney was a star. Rooney would remember Mayer as a visionary who wanted to use his studio to produce movies that would change, if not the world, then at least America— by presenting an idealized image of how things could be. And there was no better example of this than A Family Affair, the 1937 film in which Rooney first played Andy Hardy, the teenage son of a judge in bucolic small-town America. A Family Affair was a modest success nationwide, but theater owners in real small towns reported their patrons were clamoring for more stories about the Hardy clan. So MGM obliged making 14 Andy Hardy movies over the next decade. The Andy Hardy movies were Mayer's attempt to bottle everything positive about the American spirit and sell it back to Americans as a kind of cinematic self-help manual. Fans would approach Rooney on the street and thank him for teaching them how to be a teenager. Andy Hardy respected his father and loved his mother. He was girl-crazy, but his relationships never went, quote-unquote, too far. He was smart, energized, excited about life. He could get a little big for his britches, but he was easily brought down to earth. He was happy with his lot in life, and he loved his family and living in a small town. And in that, the character paralleled the enthusiasm Mickey Rooney felt for his station within the small town of MGM— like Mickey Rooney, Andy Hardy was a giant, irrepressible personality bursting out of a tiny body.
0: I am Andy Hardy. I feel right playing Andy.
2: This quote was presumably given after an incident in Mayor's office where the mogul, after having heard one too many stories about Rooney's womanizing, his gambling habit, and other unsavory aspects of his personal life, grabbed little Mickey by the lapels of his jacket And offered a warning.
3: I don't care what you do in private. Just don't do it in public. In public, behave. Your fans expect it. You're Andy Hardy. You're the United States. You're the Stars and Stripes. Behave yourself. You're a symbol.
2: Rooney's co-star in many of the Andy Hardy films, and also a series of musicals directed by Busby Berkeley, was his classmate at Mary McDonald's schoolhouse, the former Francis Gum, who was now going by the name Judy Garland. Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney had more than discarded birth names in common. Both were short and cherubic-looking teens who had been performing with their vaudeville families since they could talk. Both came from homes which their troubled fathers had broken, forcing the kids to go to work to help a single mom stay afloat. For other stars, MGM was a home away from home. For Mickey and Judy, it was a home instead of home, and their relationships with Louis B. Mayer were perhaps the most like genuine father-teenager relationships in all of their complexity. When Mickey and Judy first met in 1935, Rooney had already had his breakout in Manhattan melodrama, but Garland's position at the studio was much more precarious. Judy was signed at the same time as a singer named Deanna Durbin, a blonde beauty with a voice for opera. For Judy's first year at MGM, she was openly in competition with Durbin. Nobody believed the studio would keep two teenage girl singers on contract for long, and everyone seemed to think they would eventually decide to keep one and ditch the other. MGM even played up the differences between Deanna and Judy by casting them together in a short called Every Sunday, in which Deanna did her opera thing, and Judy showed off her very different brand of virtuosity. Swing,
1: north, south, east, west, just swing. You'll find the swing is best.
2: MGM eventually chose Garland over Durbin, but for a long time, Judy wasn't sure why. They wouldn't cast her in anything. She was kept busy with school in the morning, vocal coaching, and dance lessons in the afternoon, and at night she was often required to sing at studio events or dinner parties at various MGM people's homes. It was one of the latter events that changed Judy's profile. At the direction of her vocal coach, MGM musical producer Roger Edens, and Ida Koverman, Louis B. Mayer's personal secretary, Judy was brought in to sing at a surprise birthday party for Clark Gable. It was decided that Judy would sing You Made Me Love You to Gable, with a spoken intro couching the song as an innocent girl's fan letter to MGM's most manly star. Dear
1: Mr. Gable I am writing this to you And I hope that you will read it so you'll know My heart beats like a hammer And I stutter and I stammer Every time I see you at the picture show I guess I'm just another fan of yours And I thought I'd write And tell you so You made me love you I didn't want to do it
2: At the end of Judy's performance, Clark Gable went up to the 14-year-old and kissed her. She looked over to Louis B. Mayer, who had his arms outstretched, and Judy ran over and climbed into the mogul's lap. After that night... Judy became very busy. She was immediately cast opposite Rooney in two films, Thoroughbred's Don't Cry, in which Rooney got the part he was born to play, an arrogant horse jockey, and Love Finds Andy Hardy. Judy was not the love that Mickey's Andy Hardy would find. In this film, as in most of the films they'd make together over the next five years, Judy would play Mickey's pal, the smart level-headed friend who might take him down a peg when he needed it, but would also serve as a sounding board to help him figure out his problems with girls he was actually attracted to. In Love Finds Andy Hardy, Judy's Betsy pines for Mickey's Andy, who can't even see her. She actually has to bribe him into not taking out Lana Turner, playing a teen so sophisticated that she wears a skirt suit to the soda shop. Garland would, throughout her life, fall for men who brought talent out of her, who spotted it and helped her figure out how to be the best that she could be. And this, maybe more than any of the things they had in common, might explain why Garland developed a desperate crush on Mickey Rooney. On their first Andy Hardy film together, Mickey gave Judy the most important acting advice she'd ever receive— Before their first scene together, he pulled her aside and took her hands and said,
0: Honey, you gotta believe this now. Make like you're singing it.
2: And with that, Judy immediately got how to transfer her natural talent for animating the emotion of a song into animating dialogue. Even the stupid dialogue that pervaded many of her and Rooney's movies together. But also, it wasn't a stretch for her to feel these feelings. The troubles Judy's characters had to deal with in these movies plagued the actress off-screen as well. Her love for Rooney was unrequited. Just like Andy Hardy, he saw Judy as his soulmate, but couldn't see her as a romantic or sexual prospect. To add insult to injury, Mickey Rooney saw pretty much every other woman in town as a sexual prospect, including Norma Shearer, who was 20 years older than Rooney at the time of their affair, and Judy's co-star in Love Finds, Andy Hardy, Lana Turner. To hear Mickey tell it, it was a simple question of him providing the supply to meet the demand.
0: I began to meet my obligations to a good many of gals in town who were dying to meet me. Who wouldn't want to go out with me? I had my own car, I had some nickels in my pocket, and I was somebody. By
2: 1939, the Andy Hardy movies were responsible for nearly half of MGM's yearly profits. That year, Judy appeared with Rooney in the massive hit Babes in Arms, and she also starred in a little movie called The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz was a hit in 1939, but it wasn't what it would become. It didn't change the world, and it didn't give Judy Garland any power. With one of the greatest Hollywood films of all time on her resume, Judy still had to show up at the studio every day, usually to play a scrappy kid in movies about putting on shows in barns. There was no time to enjoy the spoils of increased fame. She and Rooney were sent on promotional tours that would have them doing 34 live shows a week, with no days off, as the opening act to screenings of The Wizard of Oz. For her efforts, Judy received a special honorary juvenile Oscar that year, and Mickey was the one who presented it. Judy and Mickey were the two most valuable stars on the MGM lot, but they were still treated like chattel.
0: One year I made nine pictures,
2: Rooney remembered.
0: I had to go from one set to another. It was like I was on a conveyor belt. You did not read a script and say, I, I guess I'll do it. You did it. They had people that knew the kinds of stories that were suited to you. It was it was a conveyor belt that made motion pictures.
2: Judy Garland was on the wholesome adolescent conveyor belt, and it would be five years after The Wizard of Oz before she would be seen in a film anywhere near that sophisticated. Both Rooney and Garland were enforced into a prolonged adolescence, but Rooney seemed more or less okay with playing Andy Hardy until he was in his late 20s. Garland chafed against it, and in fact, she had no idea how to be a real teenager. When a normal college boy invited her to a fraternity party, she showed up with a white fur stole draped around her neck like she was headed for the VIP booth at Zero's. She was obsessed with a kind of glamour that she didn't naturally possess— the kind of blonde, big-breasted, and tiny-waisted, captivating sexuality that Judy's on-screen and off-screen rival, Lana Turner, had in spades. When Judy was 15, she developed a crush on band leader Artie Shaw. Reports differ as to whether or not Shaw's relationship with Garland was sexual. Knowing what we know of Garland, I tend to believe the reports that suggest Shaw thought of Judy as a kid's sister— while Garland, blinded by a teenage romantic's fantasy, thought they were just very slowly courting. Either way, years went by, and in February 1940, suddenly the newspapers announced that Shaw had eloped. With Lana Turner. Garland sought consolation in the arms of musician David Rose, who was also married to someone else, but nonetheless gave Judy an engagement ring on her 18th birthday in 1940. They were married a year later, and separated a year and a half after that. There were other challenges that Judy faced at MGM that Rooney would never have to deal with. Later in life, she would report that as a teenager, she was frequently sexually harassed by men in power at MGM— She'd imply multitudes with phrases like, don't think they all didn't try. But she pointed fingers at Mayer by name. In Judy's recollection, Mayer used to compliment the way she sang from the heart. And when he talked about her heart, he'd put his hand on her chest, his big palm touching at once her heart and also her left breast. After years of this, Judy finally got the courage to say, Mr. Mayor, don't you ever, ever, ever do that again. According to Judy, this made Mayor cry and say, How can you say that to me? To me, who loves you. Somehow, Judy ended up comforting this large, older man, who she had just been upbraiding for taking advantage of her. Mickey and Judy had similar body types, but only Judy was constantly told that her body was unacceptable for a star. Louis B. Mayer famously, and not unaffectionately, had a name for her. My
3: little hunchback.
2: The waitresses at the MGM commissary were instructed that Judy be served only chicken soup, and she wasn't allowed to have lunch with her friends, who might let her sneak a french fry, or twelve. Of course, the repressed always returns one way or another, and Judy figured out how to get around these restrictions, hiding candy bars in her dressing room, and sneaking off to the ice cream parlor for caramel sundaes every chance she could get. This is where history starts to become controversial. We know that by her late teens, Judy Garland was addicted to pills. Uppers, downers, and diet pills— When Judy was at her normal, natural weight, she was chastised and encouraged to deprive herself. When she took enough pills to fall about 30 pounds under her natural weight, everyone told her she was fabulous. Certainly, Garland was encouraged to the self-destructive end of the spectrum by this type of reaction. But the question is, did MGM encourage the treatment as well as its results? In other words... Did MGM get Judy Garland hooked on pills? Later in her life, Judy Garland would squarely lay the blame for her addiction at the feet of MGM, even though her mother had first introduced her to sleeping pills and pep pills before Judy arrived at the studio. But at MGM, according to Judy, taking drugs was a way of life. That's the way we worked, and that's the way we got thin, she wrote. That's the way we got mixed up. And that's the way we lost contact. The we Judy is referring to is her and Mickey Rooney, who she claimed was put on the same regiment of uppers and downers, sometimes administered intravenously, as Judy was. Garland's version of the story has been supported by her friend's like Lauren Bacall, and other MGM employees have stories of the studio providing them with pills later known to be dangerously addictive. Joe Mankiewicz, the writer and director with whom Garland would later have a devastating affair, acknowledged that writers at Metro were given Benzedrine for focus. Mickey Rooney has told varying, conflicting stories about his and Garland's drug use as teenagers. He's gone back and forth between denying that there was any drug use by either of them and blaming a private doctor for Judy's addictions. Some reports suggest the bad doctor was in essence or actuality on MGM's payroll, thanks to his connection to MGM publicity director Howard Strickling. Others, though still loyal to Mayer, have suggested that Garland shifted responsibility off of herself and onto the studio. Arthur Freed, who as the head of MGM's musical unit produced many of Judy's films, said, quote, This widespread notion that the studio somehow destroyed her is nonsense. Her personal life got too much for her. Actress Katherine Grayson suggested Garland had turned Mayer into a kind of boogeyman, and that her stories about his sexual harassment of her in particular had to have been an addict's delusion. Rooney's largely whitewashed recollections of this era, given in interviews late in his life, belie the fact that during his Andy Hardy period, his moods and feelings about his situation would swing wildly. In his autobiography, Mickey described the time as a high flying one.
0: I more or less took LB Mayer and MGM for granted, blissfully believing that my good parts and my good luck and my good life would go on forever. As a result, I became as cocky a kid as ever cruised the sunset strip in his own convertible, exploding with sheer selfish energy and and pissing off almost everyone around me.
2: After the highs would come the crash. Sometimes Rooney would give interviews from a much lower place. Describing what it felt like to be famous, Rooney said,
0: I'm too tired to care, it's all work and no play. Home in bed every night after dinner. That's me has fame.
2: But that wasn't true either. Rooney had enough of a social life that MGM felt the need to surveil and control it. When Rooney announced his intention to marry new MGM starlet Ava Gardner, he was called into Mayer's office once again.
3: I simply forbid it, Mayer said. That's all. I forbid it.
0: You've got no right
3: to
2: do that, Rooney said. This is my life.
3: It's not your life. Not as long as you're working for me. MGM has made your life.
2: Rooney was eventually allowed to go through with a small wedding to Gardner, but his inability to stay faithful wrecked the marriage soon enough. Single or married, Rooney was a handful the studio got in the habit of assigning publicists to their biggest stars, who would do a lot more than the usual work of arranging and vetting interviews and writing fan magazine articles under the bylines of their clients. Mickey Rooney's personal publicist, Les Peterson, served as hybrid wingman, babysitter, and chauffeur. He made Mickey's bets for him at the racetrack and made sure events like a notorious party at Errol Flynn's house involving multiple prostitutes stayed between friends. Mickey understood that Les Peterson wasn't his friend. He made fun of the fact that his companion was on the corporate payroll by calling Peterson the vice president in charge of Mickey Rooney. But Judy Garland wasn't so savvy, or maybe she was so desperately in need of even illusory emotional support that she didn't care that her publicity department conciliary was paid to spy on and manipulate her. Eddie Asher got so close to Judy that there were rumors that they were lovers. In fact, Asher, who was 22, was having an affair with MGM executive and fixer Eddie Mannix, who was 49 in 1940, and Asher was cataloging and reporting back to Mannix every minute detail of Garland's life and behavior. Garland claimed she didn't realize this for years and that when she figured it out, She cried for days. Judy had gotten to the point where she dreaded coming to work. Sometimes I'd think I couldn't live through the day, Garland told columnist Hedda Hopper. I'd have my drivers circle the block because I so hated going through those gates. She hated the way they treated her, and even more so, hated the rules they gave her. Judy was so obsessed with breaking free of her image as Mickey Rooney's sexless sidekick... That she almost refused to star in Meet Me in St. Louis, because on the script level, it seemed like her character was just another teenage girl, literally pining in vain over the boy next door. But as directed by Vincent Minnelli, Meet Me in St. Louis would become not just a gothic art film in the package of an MGM musical, but also the first film, after failed makeover attempts in Ziegfeld Girl and Presenting Lily Mars in which Garland would look convincingly beautiful. That breakthrough didn't come along until 1944, after the final film Mickey and Judy made together, Girl Crazy. Girl Crazy has songs by George Gershwin, a new director in Norman Torog, because Busby Berkeley was fired shortly after shooting began, after clashing disastrously with the ultra-sensitive Judy, And a new spin in that Garland plays Rooney's main romantic interest. There are spectacular song and dance numbers in Girl Crazy, but it's also impossible not to notice that its stars are spinning their wheels. 23-year-old Rooney is playing a college sophomore. Girl Crazy is the film where off-screen reality became impossible for Judy and Mickey to ignore. Unhappy that her mother and the studio had talked her into having an abortion... Garland started augmenting her cocktail of pharmaceuticals with actual cocktails, causing tension and delays on set. And on the same set, Mickey Rooney received his draft notice. Louis B. Mayer fought vigorously to keep Rooney out of the war and in Culver City, where he could keep making MGM movies and thus minting money. But once the newspapers got wind of Mayer's appeals to the draft board— The whole thing started to look unseemly, and MGM finally let their pint-sized cash cow go serve his country. Assigned to special services, he entertained troops at bases in the U.S. and Europe until 1946, when he returned to MGM and made yet another Andy Hardy movie. Now 26, Rooney was patently too old for the role and the series' simplistic view of American life, had fallen out of fashion. For the first time in his career, Mickey Rooney struggled. By the end of the decade, he was dropped by MGM. The war years were more productive ones for Judy Garland. Her relationship with Vincent Minnelli knitted two of her best films, Meet Me in St. Louis and The Clock, as well as daughter Liza. But her drug and alcohol use worsened, And in 1947, while shooting The Pirate, she suffered a nervous breakdown. She recovered enough to finish that film and make Easter Parade, her only film with Fred Astaire, and a truly great musical in which Garland looks glamorous and graceful. Which, for Judy Garland, means she's also worryingly thin. Easter Parade was Garland's biggest moneymaker ever. But the success, like her very low goal weight was unsustainable. Within two years, MGM, the only studio Garland had ever worked for, let her go. So did Judy Garland bring all of her problems on herself? Or was she walked down the path of doom by an evil corporation hell-bent on milking her talent at any cost? The truth probably lies somewhere in the middle, because that's usually the case. But here are two things that we know for sure. One is that amphetamines, in the form of prescribable pills, were brand new in the late 1930s. And while their use became commonplace quickly, Judy Garland's daughter Lorna Luft would claim in her book Me and My Shadows that even Louis B. Mayer himself took the same kinds of pills they gave her mother, nothing was known about their long-term consequences. And the second thing we know is that other people might have been able to pop pills only occasionally to get through a long day or get over a long night, or even habitually, and not have problems. But Judy Garland was a born addict. She exhibited addictive, compulsive, and codependent behavior her entire life, from her secret candy-eating to her way-too-close relationship to her personal publicist. Judy Garland was an addict living in a time when no one understood addiction as a sickness. Luft credits MGM with introducing her mother to amphetamines, but she also credits the studio, and Louis B. Mayer specifically, with trying to help Garland get off the drugs. Which they did, and Mayer himself even personally paid some of Judy's medical bills. But eventually, when their help didn't work and her sickness was costing too much money, they fired her. By the early 1950s, not only were many of the now adult child stars off the lot, but there were few new child stars to replace them. And as of 1951, Louis B. Mayer was gone too. In 1954, there was just one student in Mary's schoolhouse. She served as principal of the school until the last student graduated in 1965. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research intern is Ali Gemmel, and this episode was edited by Henry Malofsky. Special thanks to our special guests. Craig Mazin returned as Louis B. Mayer, and it was an honor to welcome Dana Carvey, who played Mickey Rooney. Also, thanks to John Mulaney for helping to make that happen. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, You must remember youmustrememberthispodcast.com. At the website for every episode, there is a list of show notes, including sources, so you can get a sense of the research behind the episode, because you can't put footnotes on audio. If you like the show, please tell anybody you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and rate and review the show there. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.
0: Uh, Hi, here's some actual Mickey quotes in case you guys want to use them, just for fun. What he said often. I was the number one star in the world. You hear me? Bang. The world. That was one he always said. The other one was, Judy Garland. They pumped her so full of drugs they killed her. That was two. Uh, The other one was... uh, I called up my business manager in 1952. I said, this is Mickey Rooney. I'm broke. He said, how can you be broke? I have a yacht named after you. Anyway, those are three he said all the time. Okay. Use them if you want.